I think that the um, compromising of the Republican Party by Putin, by Russian intelligence, uh, is the most successful um, intelligence uh, action probably in modern history. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. How did leading Republicans go from being cold warriors to apologists for Vladimir Putin? For insight, I turned to Stuart Stevens, who knows Republican politics from the inside. He was a top Republican political operative, having worked on five presidential campaigns, including Mitt Romney's in 2012 and the successful campaigns of George W. Bush in 2000 and 2004. These days, from his home in Vermont, he finds himself inside a very different political operation. He is a central player in the anti-Trump Lincoln Project and argues that the current Republican Party should be burned to the ground. His latest book is It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. Stuart Stevens, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks, David. Great to be here, man. Trump Conservatives uh, seem to be in crisis over the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Politico has a story this week about an emergency meeting held by pro-Trump conservatives in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, It featured some of the leading lights of uh, the party, including J.D. Vance, who's running for Senate in Ohio. Uh, And Vance told the crowd, quote, using American power to do the dirty work of Europe is a pretty bad idea, close quote. Um, It's a pretty remarkable statement given uh, how we refer to people who were in World War II as the greatest generation that, um, that, you know, defending Europe was kind of in the interest of the U.S. What's going on here? I think that the um, compromising of the Republican Party by Putin, by Russian intelligence, uh, is the most successful um, intelligence uh, action probably in modern history. I mean, it's really on some levels, it isn't complicated. Um, Russia supported Trump in 2016. We know that. Now, you can argue whether or not they made a difference or not. It's always difficult in politics because causality is the hardest thing to determine. But we know that they made a concerted, massive effort to elect Donald Trump. They were so successful that conservatives, when this was exposed, defended it by calling it a Russian hoax. I mean, can you imagine, if you're a Russian intelligence officer, how chortling you would be to get, at one time, Republican Party was the chief uh, antagonist to Soviet Union, then uh, Russia, and now that party has become an apologist for Putin. So. Russia supports Donald Trump. Donald Trump gets elected. Donald Trump does everything he can to weaken NATO. Um, He uh, tries to leverage uh, critical defense weapons like javelins, which we now know a lot more about, with uh, President Zelensky. The result of that is a nine-month delay in arming and training Ukrainians. It is no exaggeration that a lot of Ukrainians are dying because Donald Trump tried to leverage uh, Zelensky. Um, Republicans still wouldn't convict him. Uh, Mitt Romney was the only Republican to vote to convict Trump for that. In fact, Romney's the only 
senator to vote to convict a member of his own party for impeachment in the history of the country. Um, he did it twice. Um, so I, I think that there is a large element of the conservative movement uh, that has become a pro-Putin autocratic movement. They see Putin as a white Christian nationalist. There are no gay people in Russia, as we know. You never see any women in power in Russia. Um, it is uh, not a democracy. It is a strong man. All of this uh, draws much of the Republican Party. And this is, you know, my theory of the case is Donald Trump did not change the Republican Party. He revealed it. And for those of us who worked in the Republican Party for a long time, it's a devastating conclusion. But I think it's the only honest one. So the Republican Party that I grew up with, you grew up with, the Cold War was its touchstone. And for, uh, you know, it was a formative part of the Republican brand. And in any election throughout my lifetime until the fall of the Berlin Wall and in uh, 91, um, you know, who was tougher on Russia, you know, was kind of what campaigns were built about, certainly at the national level. How have we gone from, it's as if Cory Booker in 10 years was running by crusading against civil rights and gay rights. Um, I mean, it's, it is head spinning where we are at right at this moment uh, with never, Putin on the we, rise. Look, um, you know, as I say, a lot of people were wrong about Trump in 2016, but it's hard to find anybody who was more wrong than me. I didn't think that he won the nomination. I didn't think he won the general election. And when he did, I really had to ask myself exactly these kind of questions. And in that old sort of English teacher sense that if you can't write it, you don't understand it, that led me to really start trying to understand the party. And that ultimately led me to write this book. It was all a lie. Um, I think that a lot of the uh, ideas of the Republican Party, the values of the Republican Party were, were presented as values were in fact marketing slogans. Because I don't think that you abandon deeply held beliefs in a few years, unless there's tremendous contrary information. If you don't think UFOs exist and a UFO lands and walks in your door, okay, that's a reason to say, okay, UFOs exist. Nothing like that happened in American politics. Nothing like that happened between um, a relationship between Russia and the Soviet Union and the Republican Party. And they, it's not that the Republican Party drifted away, as you, as you point out. It's they're completely opposite now. So don't forget in the 2020, uh, or 2016 uh, platform, what was changed was uh, aid to Ukraine under Paul Manafort's direction. I mean, Paul Manafort, who worked for these oligarchs, uh, forever. And everybody who worked in the Republican Party knew this about Paul Manafort. I mean, I knew Paul from the 80s. Um, I mean, it was just, I mean, Paul was a pirate. He was out there like under the Jolly Roger. I mean, there's no pretense about it. Um, and Trump, the idea that Trump brought him in is just extraordinary. And, and um, let's remind people, Manafort was... Trump's campaign manager or uh, 
Manafort, well, uh, first this guy, Corey Lewandowski from New Hampshire, who uh, was most famous in politics because he had once debated as a Republican a cardboard cutout of a Democratic gubernatorial candidate. And the consensus was to cut out one. That was Lewandowski's claim to fame. He uh, is terrible at politics. He's never been involved in even a statewide winning race. Um, he worked for Trump because nobody at a time when no one else would work for Trump. Uh, he has this abusive pattern with women. They finally got rid of Lewandowski and they brought in Paul Manafort. Um, Manafort had not been involved in American politics this century. Um, and he ran it and then they got rid of him. But now when, let's, let's be clear about who Manafort worked for. You say he was working for the oligarchs, but he was working specifically in Ukraine, right? Yes, he was working for anti-democratic forces in Ukraine. Uh, he, that was his brand. Yeah. He was basically a functionary. He was sort of the political equivalent of like the Wagner group of mercenaries for Russia. That's what he did. Um, and everybody knew this. This was not a secret in Republican politics. I mean, Paul was always trying to get people to come over there and work. Um, and then they got rid of him and they hired Kellyanne Conway. What's so, I mean, this is a little bit inside baseball, but all of these people around Trump, it's not like they woke up in 2016 and wanted to be involved in presidential politics. They had always tried to be involved in politics. You know, Steve Bannon, I mean, I probably have an old answering machine from 2000 that has 20 messages from Steve Bannon trying to work for the Bush campaign. But nobody would let these people in. Kellyanne Conway, Lindowski, Stephen Miller, uh, the other Miller. I mean, he was my intern. These were all just the broken toys of politics. And nobody would work for Trump. And Trump brought these broken toys in and they have used politics to a large degree to work through a lot of really deep personal issues. I mean, you look at these people, they're really badly damaged people, as is Trump, you know, which is what happened in the 1930s in Germany. So, but the, the key here is what the Republican Party has become, it's not a normal political party in American sense that has a, a different ideology that you can articulate a, a coherent theory of government versus the Democratic Party, which is still a classically more center left. It has become an autocratic movement. There is no conservative philosophy that anyone involved in the Republican Party can articulate with any consistency or conviction. It exists to beat Democrats, to gain power. And that is why cartels exist not political parties. Nobody asks OPEC, like, what is your higher purpose? Like, or, or narco cartel, like we sell dope. That is the purpose of the Democratic Party, of the Republican Party now. Um, and it, they are drawn to uh, Putin because he is so much of what they fantasize they would like the world to be. And when people say, well, how can, you know, Putin be, a representative of Christian nationalists when he's not a Christian. My answer to that is, have you ever met Donald Trump? And he's a darling of these people. Um, and I, I think that we're at this point where 
we don't know who's going to win this battle. Yeah. We, we don't know. I can't tell you um, that the autocratic forces aren't going to win. And, you know, when you read books like How Democracies End by those two Harvard professors, which is a brilliant book, and, or Twilight of Democracy by Ann Applebaum, mm -hmm. which, you know, I go around handing those books out like, you know, religious tracts to random strangers in airports. They make the point that democracies, modern democracies usually don't end in violent coups like Allende in Chile. They end at the ballot box and in the courtroom. And that's what happened in Hungary. And that is what is happening in uh, trying to happen now in the United States. And at the heart of it, David, it is race. Because 85% of the Trump coalition is white. The country's 57% white. Of Americans 15 years and under, the majority are non-white. Odds are really, really good they're gonna turn 18 and still be non-white. And of the new Americans in the new census, one out of 10 was white. So they see this, they know this, and all the Stephen Millers in the world can't change that. So their only hope is to change the way people vote and to make it more difficult for those who are non-white to vote. And that is a concerted effort. It's organized, it's well-financed, and it should not be taken lightly. So these are not, this is not a new idea that at the heart of this is race. The Southern strategy that Nixon utilized with great success was built on racial grievance. Um, and you were part of that uh, enterprise of exploiting that to electoral advantage. So what are you surprised about now? Well, I think that in my view, there was always these two strands of the Republican Party in post-World War II. There was called an Eisenhower strand, which was boring, governing, sane, and a Joe McCarthy strand. Uh, conspiratorial, xenophobic, often racist, non-governing. Those two strands sort of fought each other out at different times in the Republican Party. And those of us who were drawn to uh, George Bush, George W. Bush, and a, a concept of compassion and conservatism, I think it's fair to say that we believe we were the dominant gene. And, you know, there's a group of us. We literally used to sit in the same room. Uh, me, Nicole Wallace, M Matthew Dowd, uh, Mark McKinnon, uh, Pete Wainer, Michael Gersten. And we've all come to the same conclusion about Trump, that he's just as horror. So we used to admit, at least in Bush world, and a lot of Republicans, I mean, I work for Bill Well, for God's sakes, um, that the great failure of the Republican Party was not to appeal to non-white voters. And I mean, Ken Melman, who was chairman of the Republican Party, went before the NAACP in 2005 and apologized for the Southern strategy. So does that matter? I think it does. I mean, the reality is that the Republican Party never came up with the fundamental political policy that would appeal to those at the bottom edge of the economic spectrum who were not white. And we used to think it was a communication problem. I mean, I write about this in my book. It was, you know, the saying Republicans don't know how to talk to black people. And it spawned this sort of retrospect, hideously embarrassing 
uh, industry of African-American consultants being hired by the Republican Party to come down and talk to Republican campaigns, predominantly white, about how to talk to black people. And it was always stuff like, instead of talking about like good jobs, you need to talk about meaningful jobs. And we would all nod and try to, you know, and of course it made no difference at all. The problem wasn't that, that African-Americans didn't understand the Republican Party. The problem for the Republican Party is that African-Americans did understand them and they knew exactly what it was. So 1956, Eisenhower gets 45% of the black vote. I mean, Nixon got in the 30s, Jackie Robinson campaigned for Nixon. And then in 1964, Goldwater's against the Civil Rights Act and it drops down to 7%. Now you could have made a case after the Civil Rights Act passed that a certain large number of African-Americans would be drawn back to the Republican Party because of shared values of patriotism, cultural conservatism, faith, entrepreneurship, but that didn't happen. So the Republican Party since 1964 has been predominantly a white party. And if it was a business and 90 plus percent of your audience was a certain type, you would get good at talking to that audience. So the Republican Party had a choice. It either had to do the hard work of what it was necessary to examine what it was about your political philosophy and proposals that were not appealing to these people, or you just had to accept that you were gonna be a white grievance party and go all in. And the tragic choice was made is accepted to go a white grievance party. Um, so as you look at um, where we are right now, where we have um, leading Republican figures, uh, certainly people like Tucker Carlson, who, um, you know, are essentially apologists for Putin, campaigning against uh, Ukraine, um, you know, efforts to, you know, to support Ukraine. As you look back, what was the tipping point that you missed where you were really on an island that nobody I, had followed you? Um, the answer to that is I don't know. Um, I mean, I think, so if you go back to Bush in 2000, Bush wins in 2000, um, you know, when he talked about compassion and conservatism, a lot of conservatives attacked him for it because, and said, basically, are, are you accusing conservatism in America of not being compassionate? And Bush's answer was, yeah, pretty much. That's the idea. So what does Bush do when he gets elected? His first major piece of legislation was No Child Left Behind, which you can debate whether or not that was about, you know, the merits of that. But, you know, there's this famous picture, he's signing No Child Left Behind with Ted Kennedy over his right shoulder. It was a bipartisan effort, Bush Kennedy. I mean, now today in the Republican party, that photograph would be presented like at a war crimes tribunal. Um, and, you know, Bush, as a governor, his mentor was a Democratic lieutenant governor, Bob Bullock. He really did come out of that tradition of working with both parties. I mean, Bush was never very partisan in that sense. Um, and then 9-11 happened. So I think you can make a good case that the last best hope for the Republican Party to become something else in a transformative sense was 9-11, when Bush became a wartime president. And all of that went out the window. So you can, so what would the person have done who in his first six months passed No Child Left Behind with Ted Kennedy? You can speculate. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of an interesting parlor game with great sadness that some of us in Bush world play. Um, so I think that was probably the last best hope. I mean, I think had Romney won, 
uh, he would have led the party in a very different direction. I mean, I can tell you in the Romney war campaign, we sat there and we looked at these numbers, right? And it was clear there were white votes out there that you really could only appeal to with pretty blatant racist appeal. And you know, Romney just, not surprisingly, never would do it. Trump did it in 16. Our assumption would have been, my assumption would have been that will turn off enough college educated Republicans to walk away from that. So the real turning point for that as far as the party's concerned is in December of 2015, when Trump comes out for a Muslim ban. So what is a Muslim ban but a religious test? I mean, I used to remember the, 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 the singer Cat Stevens who became a Muslim, I used to you know, use the example like, so what if Cat Stevens shows up at Heathrow and says he's a Quaker? What are you, what are you gonna do? Like ask him trivia questions about William Penn? I mean, it's a religious test. Um, and the party accepted it. That's when they should have, you know, Reince Priebus should have gone out there and go, no, 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 no. We do not have religious test. And I can't stop Donald Trump from running, but if Donald Trump is for this, no element of the Republican party where I am chairman of will support it. And that's what he should have done. Now I know why he didn't. He didn't do it because Trump was still threatening to run as an independent, which would have doomed any chance to elect a Republican. And nobody thought Trump would win. So if you go back to 16 and the 17 candidates running, all 16 tried to kill each other to get one-on-one -on -one with Donald Trump. Because I mean, for God's sake, David, there was no way the Republican party was gonna nominate a failed casino owner who talked in public about having sex with his daughter. Like <laughs> that was not going to happen. So I could just, you know, I, I'm Ted Cruz. I just gotta get one-on-one -on -one with this bozo and I'm gonna crush him. They all thought that, so they all killed each other. Trump has always benefited from the inability to imagine Donald Trump. And that happened in the fall. People couldn't imagine, particularly after Access Hollywood, Donald Trump winning. And I think Hillary Clinton left a lot of votes on the table. And, you know, up until the Comey letter, Trump was losing college educated Republicans, which no one Republicans ever lost college educated Republicans. Um, I, uh, Goldwater won one. Um, so, the party collapsed, and I don't think we've seen anything like it, except in the Soviet Union with the collapse of communism. What communism said it was for, and what actually it was for, became so disconnected. I mean, if you watch Chernobyl, it just collapsed. And that's what happened to the Republican Party. It collapsed because you ultimately believe what you'll fight for. And yet here we find ourselves at a moment so communism and autocracy and the Soviet Union collapse only to be revived and embraced by a modern uh, Republican Party. Um, what is the fascination with autocracy? Oh, it's simple. Um, the problem with democracy is, well, two things. One, somebody's got to be willing to lose. That's the fundamental tenet of democracy. And two, everybody gets to vote. So that means people unlike you get to vote. So at the core of that is this debate, should only men vote? Should only white people vote? Uh, it, it is all an extension. So the Republican party is dominated by white men on all levels. And 
it is an unwillingness to accept that others should have an equal voice. So if you're for an autocracy, I mean, you know, there are lots of gay people in Russia. There are lots of women in Russia, but you know, Putin is, I don't have to listen to them. I can deny their existence. Which is at the essence of this is a willingness to ignore what is true and create your own false narrative. I mean, this is the essence of 1984. And that is what autocracies are about. So there is no difference between Donald Trump saying, I won this election and Putin saying there are no war crimes. It is no difference to saying, you know, we're not going to believe COVID is really out there. It's a, it's a government plot. So why do they use hopes a lot? You know, why do, why did so many conservatives go out and uh, attack the Mueller report as a Russian hoax? Hoax is a favorite word here of autocrats. Um, they accuse people of what they are. And projection. This is what happens in, in Hungary. So it's not complicated at all. I mean, you, you it, it, America's headed to become a minority, a majority minority country. I mean, why non-college educated Republicans, right? Here, here's a perfect example. 1980, Ronald Reagan wins a sweeping landslide, what, like 49 states, right? He got 57% of the white vote. 2008, John McCain loses with 57% of the white vote. And that's all you need to know. And that the country is changing. It is becoming a non-white. By 10, 000, or 2045, it's projected it'll be a minority, majority country, majority, minority country. So if your essence is a sense of entitlement for being white and male, particularly, this is terrifying. So this is why you want an autocrat. I mean, it's, it's straight up. There's a crazy logic to it. Um, which is why it is so difficult for us to understand it. Because we think these people just don't understand what they're saying. You know, when people aren't acting what we can, most of us consider normal, we even have a language about this, but they'll revert to normalcy. This is what people kept saying about Trump. And once he's elected, he'll do this. Once he's president, he'll do that. Yeah. No, they are normal. They're just different. This is what they want to be. You've been deeply involved with the Lincoln Project, a group that was founded by top Republican operatives and politicians initially to oppose the re-election of Donald Trump in 2020. How do you describe the goals of the Lincoln Project today? Well, you know, the Lincoln Project is a really interesting, odd organization. Um, it is the only large organization that I know of in America that really draws people from the left and the right with really a single issue, which was, well, to fight Trump and Trumpism, which is really to fight for democracy. Um, I mean, there's real conservatives involved in the Lincoln Project. I was riding my bike in California with a friend who brought another friend who's a lawyer, who's a big Lincoln Project supporter. And he goes, you know, I love the Lincoln Project and I'm a communist. I'm like, really? Well, not really, but my father was a blacklisted Hollywood communist and I kind of grew up as a red diaper baby. And that's really unusual in American politics now. Um, and, it started, I was not involved when it began. I was working for Will, uh, Bill Well when he was primarying Trump uh, because I kept saying, why doesn't somebody primary Trump? And finally Well did and Well was a former client and a friend and it was like, well, he called my bluff, I gotta work for him. 
But when I got involved in them, it was really, when they started it, they had no idea um, that it would make much of an impact. And I remember talking to these guys before they started it. And I was skeptical. I was like, do you really think it's gonna map? And their honest answer was, we have no idea. We gotta do something. Because really you're, you're a Republican like that. You have three choices. Be for Trump, we're not gonna do that. Do nothing, which most of our friends did, honestly, which was a comfortable place. Um, or go try to kill your own party. And we said, we're gonna go try to kill our own party. And we have certain skills that we're good at. Um, and we know how to do some stuff and we're gonna to try to use the stuff we know how to do to kill the party, to kill Trump and Trumpism. And I think it played a key role. I mean, at the time, if you remember, you know, start of 20, or start of 16, um, a lot of Democrats had the very logical opinion that the way to win in six, in, I'm sorry, uh, in 20, not 16, in 20, the way to win was to talk about issues, not to talk about Donald Trump. And the thinking was, look, there's nobody in America that doesn't have an opinion on Donald Trump. Nothing you're gonna say is gonna change anybody's mind about Donald Trump, we need to talk about issues. I mean, this was Elizabeth Warren's position and she could articulate it, she always does beautifully. You know, there was an early debate where she came off stage and said, that was a great debate, we didn't talk about Donald Trump. And the Lincoln Project's view was that's completely wrong. That Donald Trump is the top issue, the top 10 issues, the top 100 issues in this race and realize that. So we went out and said that at a time when Joe Biden was busy losing primaries. So then Biden ultimately obviously won and his message for the soul of America was very similar to that. Um, and I think personally, one of the reasons a lot of these down ticket uh, Democrats lost, like in Maine, was that the, the hardest thing, the big fight in presidential politics is to define the agenda. So 92, when Bill Clinton's running, he stirred in May. The race was about experience, about uh, foreign policy. Once the race became about change, that's a race George Bush couldn't win against Bill Clinton. It didn't have to become about change, but it did. It, once the, um, the race, we felt that the race uh, had to be about Donald Trump, which is really a referendum on decency. So if you look at somebody like Olympia Snow and you put her through a decency test, yeah, okay, she passes that. I mean, if that's what the race is about, I can vote for her and still, I mean, she's not a horrible person. Um, and I think that, that was the reality of a lot of these uh, races that people, uh, we thought that Democrats might win. Um, there were a lack of uh, Biden coattails. Um, so now, I mean, look, I'll be honest, uh, I never thought I'd be making ads again in, in politics. I got involved in the Lincoln Project. Um, it exploded, the Lincoln Project, I think it's arguable, it's the third largest force in American politics. We have more social media followers than the Democratic Party or the Republican Party which for something that's been around for a couple of years is pretty amazing. And it's because there is a need for people to come together and fight for democracy. It is sort of a run to the sound of the guns. Um, and I, in October of 20, uh, you know, we were working, I, you know, 20 hours. I mean, I've been doing that since the spring when I got involved in the Lincoln Project. It was my sixth presidential race. Um, I really allowed myself to think like if we beat Trump, I can quit doing this. 
And then Trump lost, but then all this crazy stuff happened, like Republicans would admit that he lost. And then one six happened and it was just clear, this was much worse than I even imagined. So um, I, you know, I have these discussions with Democrats, kind <laughs> of like yourself. They go, hey, you know, you guys were Republicans, like we don't trust you, which I get. You work for a lot of people who we hate. Why should we trust you? And my answer to that is, I tell you what you should think about us. This is it. You should just think we're useful. You don't have to like us. You don't have to trust us. But we're good at some stuff. And if you really believe this is an existential fight for democracy, you're going to want to get all the help you can get. And we can do some stuff better than a lot of Democrats can. And that is just the reality. Um, I mean, there are certain emotional levers and stuff that I, for the life of me, I don't understand why the Democratic Party doesn't access more. Um, what I hope is happening now, um, you know, there was a time, you're talking earlier about the Republican Party and having strength on Russia, but there was a time when the Democratic Party was very strong on foreign policy. I mean, John Kennedy won because of a missile gap. Um, he was to the right of, of Nixon on the missile gap. Scoop Jackson, there was a strong uh, Monaghan, uh, a strong, I mean, Gene Kirkpatrick was a Democrat. Um, and then Reagan ran against Carter. And since that, the Republican Party really is own strength, call it, in foreign policy, despite a disastrous, historically disastrous Iraq war, Afghanistan, all of this, it still did. What I hope is happening now is that the Democratic Party is regaining a strength on, on foreign policy, strong on Russia, strong on uh, dictators. And if that is happening, it will transform American politics in a very positive way. If the Republican Party is really accepted for what it has become, which is a pro-dictator, pro-autocratic party, that will have a uh, effect on the future of these parties. And you know, a lot of people say, why aren't there three parties in America? We need a third party. And my answer to that is there really are three parties. There's the Republican Party, which has really become a party of no. And there's two parties inside the Democratic Party. You know, call it a Biden wing and a Sanders wing. And I think the fight between those two parties or the battle or the whatever, discussion, whatever you want to call it, is going to determine the future of the country. So let, let's turn to the future of the country and the future of democracy. You are a very close watcher of elections, of, um, you know, the of polling voter suppression efforts uh, are, you know, basically burning like a wildfire and are being passed by the dozen, particularly in, um, well, only in Republican-led states. What do you, there's talk of Democrats losing the House that seems to have become, you know, kind of conventional wisdom as we look at the midterm elections. What do you see going forward? What do you see as the impact of these voter suppression efforts in, um, you know, many, many states? Where's this going? Um, well, look, first you got to step back and go, there's only three times in the last 125 years that a party in power gained seats in the off year. 
The last time was 2002 when the Republicans did. And I was right at the center of that. And we decided to nationalize the race around domestic security. And I can remember vividly sitting around in like December of 2001. And, you know, we were asked, is this going to work? And our honest answer was, we have no idea. But it's the only thing that can work. It's the only thing that gives us a chance to win. So you have to start from, uh, there are strong historical precedents that Democrats will lose the House. And it shouldn't be taken as a catastrophic event for the Democratic Party. It should be taken as that's how American politics works. And it's important for Democrats to remember that. Um, I think, you know, Joe Trippi now has gotten involved with the Lincoln Project. Joe Trippi was, um, I think, right, you know, the very top of Democratic consultants of his generation. He invented modern politics in a lot of ways when he ran the Howard Dean campaign in 2004. Um, he's joined the Lincoln Project. Um, you know, no one is, understands more about the Democratic Party than he does. You know, he's made the point that things are not as bad as it looks. And he was saying this about redistricting before redistricting was going to be a huge disaster for Democrats. It turns out to be a wash or maybe even better. Um, it, you know, if I was running the Democratic Party, my message to Democrats would be nationalize this race, make it a race about democracy, make it uh, unpatriotic to vote Republican. And people will respond to that. And people say, well, well, you know, it's only going to be about the economy. It's only going to be about inflation, gas prices. Well, I think if it's about inflation, you're going to lose. So I would try to make it about something you have a chance to win. Um, and, you know, politics is usually a game of small numbers. And if you can just get enough people to believe that, you don't have to get everybody to believe it or, or care about that. Um, and my, what frustrates me about the Democratic Party is a lack of confidence. We hear this all the time. Like, you know, why is it Republicans are so much better at this? And I'm like, hey, guys, guys, look, you won the popular vote every time since 1988, except once, and that was 2004. I did that race. We were very, very, very lucky to win, and we know it. We never figured it, thought that we'd like figured out the secret sauce. I mean, if 70,000 people had changed votes in Ohio, Kerry would have won. That's less than a home game in Ohio State. So if, if Republicans are so good at this and Democrats are so bad, how come you get like 8 million more of you voted for Biden? I would say, you know, try to imbue to the Democrats, like walk with confidence, get a little swagger. You're right, they're wrong. There's more of you than them. Support each other. What, what, do, you think, me what do you think is gonna be the impact of these voter suppression laws? Well, there, there are a lot of different laws here. Um, and, and I should go beyond voter suppression. I mean, we're hearing about, uh, you know, election boards being packed with people who believe in the big lie. Which um, is the greatest, that is a greater danger, I think. So yeah. when you really do an analysis so of state by state on how these laws are being changed, right? A lot of this is in the context of uh, certain uh, early voting, more boxes and stuff that was put in place because of COVID. And some of those are being limited, but it's still a much better situation on whole than it was, say, 2016. There are, there are more places to vote and we're, we're changing how we vote, right? So, you know, somehow early voting has become a test of 
voter suppression. Well, I mean, New York State never had early voting. Georgia had much more early voting than New York State, and nobody pointed to New York State as a great voter suppression state. Um, I think that the greater danger here is exactly what you were talking about. The power to imbue the Republican-held legislature to overturn elections. And um, ultimately, you know, why do Democrats tend to do worse in off years? Because a third more voters vote in presidential years than off years. A third. It's a different electorate. So every political race in America is about getting people who could vote to vote. So my message about voter suppression to Democrats would be don't worry about it. Leave it to Mark Elias, the lawyer who's out there fighting this case by case. And Martin Elias's law firm is the Lincoln Project. You know, focus on getting more people who can vote to vote. That's how you're going to win. And there's there's groups like in Florida, you know, grassroots groups that are registering more voters, getting more people to vote. That is what's going to determine this rate. Voter suppression laws are not going to determine the outcome of 2022. Voter turnout is. So if you get in your head, they're trying to to. to take this away from us. I think that's a good motivator. The way you do it is get more people to vote. And what kills me about the Democratic Party, David, is here you have Biden gives this beautiful State of the Union speech at a time that I think is gonna be looked upon as a moment like 1941, Western democracy on the edge. And Democrats feel compelled to give an alternative State of the Union. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, leave that to Republicans. Back, back Biden. He's the president. He's your president. He's your guy. What he, did what, what did you uh, see this week in the Katanji Brown Jackson hearings? Um, what did you see on display there? And it's always worth remembering that Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman Supreme Court justice, was confirmed with a ninety-nine to zero vote. Yeah, and there was talk that. If such a vote or an, a lopsided majority uh, were to, you know, a, another justice were to get that, it might well be Katanji Brown Jackson. That's not what happened. Um, what did you see going on at play? Listen, I don't think it's complicated. I think at the heart of the Republican Party is a uh, deep racism. Now, when I say this, all my old Republican friends go, oh, Stuart, are you trying to say that everybody... You know, they used to say 67 million people voted for, for Trump. Now, what, 77 are racist. My answer to that is, well, first of all, there probably are 77 million racists in the country, so don't act so surprised. But secondly, you don't have to be a racist to vote for Trump. You just have to be willing to accept that something is more important to you than having a racist as president. So I think that a lot of the message I heard from these Republican senators was congratulating uh, Judge Jackson on rising to a point where they could vote against her. So it's like, what? Really? And look, this is, this is where we are. Um, it, 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 we're not going to go back to that. Bipartisanship is, is a myth. And this is one of my frustrations. Uh, I, and I understand the Biden. What you have to understand, if you're sitting in the White House, right, and you're, you're, you're working for Biden, and you're trying to get Republicans, right? Here's what's different. 70% of Republicans don't think you're a legal president. That's never happened before. That's 1860. 
It's not, this, this is, we gloss over this. They, no one will be nominated for president in 2024 on the Republican side who will aggressively assert that they are running against a legal president. So what does that mean? If Joe Biden's not a legal president, that means we're an occupied country. The only thing it means, that means we're not a democracy. So the 2024 election is not gonna be about who's gonna win in a democratic system. For the 70 million, it's gonna be, can we restore what has been stolen from us? And you think about that, and it comes to your 400 million guns. It is not, I mean, it's a beautiful book written by this Canadian guy who writes for The Guardian, but you know, his previous is we are in a civil war. We just don't ever sort of acknowledge it. And there is a great lust for normalcy we all have. We're tired of wearing masks. We're tired. We have a normal looking president, right? We have a normal White House. Fine, things are normal. Things aren't normal. This has never happened. We have an autocratic movement in America that is threatening democracy itself. And they are willing, they'll be for democracy when they win and they won't be for when they lose. That means you're not for democracy. And if we don't wake up and, and face this, we're gonna lose democracy. Look, we're the world's oldest democracy, which is both terrifying and encouraging. It's terrifying because what the hell happened to these other democracies? And the, what is it that is, this is where we suffer from, you know, I think the sin of American exceptionalism. Why can't we become like Hungary? There's absolutely no reason. There is everything in place. If you go back and read how democracies die, they do 10 steps of how democracies die. We are way ahead of schedule for what they thought was gonna happen. You have a party that is, an autocratic movement has taken over a major political party. They have a major propaganda wing. They have uh, tremendous finance. Um, they have stormtroopers. They have shock troops. And they are working to build a legal theory to support autocracy. Those are all the elements you need. They are missing nothing. And if we sit over here and Democrats start arguing about we're we gonna have a $3.1 billion Build back or 1.8. I can guarantee you in 20 years, no one on God's green earth is going to remember that. But they will remember if 2024 is the last election in America that resembled an election we know in our lifetime. And, you know, whenever I say this, Democrats, and I get this, they go, well, like, who the hell are you to tell the Democratic Party what to do? And they're right. All I can do is beg because I, I, I know these people, right? I know them. As bad as you think they are, they're worse. This is what they want. They don't want the same thing that most of us want. And they are a minority, just as National Socialists were a minority, just as Victor Orban started out as a minority. And it is extraordinarily dangerous. The there's sort of two tests here, right? So you're Mitch McConnell, you go to sleep on January 5th, 2021, you're majority leader. You wake up on January 6th, you're minority leader, and your colleagues are running for their lives in their own office. And you still won't vote to hold that person responsible. So now you have, that's one test. So if they're trying to kill your colleagues and you still won't vote, like what else are they gonna do? Well, and it, it's always worth remembering Mitch McConnell held in his hands the ability to remove Donald Trump as a political force in the Republican party. And uh, worse than that, 
to this day, he says he will vote for Donald Trump if he's a Republican nominee. As far as I know, every Republican leader who's voted for Trump says they will support him again. So what do you do with that? You, you, you accept it is what you do. And they're not going to change. And the other test is what's happening in Ukraine. Republican Party is a pro-Putin party on a large level because the official platform of the Republican Party that still exists is whatever Donald Trump wants. And Donald Trump is a pro-Putin candidate, 100%. I mean, if Donald Trump was president today, no one, what would be happening? I mean, how many dead Ukrainians? How many, you don't think Russia would be on the, the, the steps of Warsaw? Of course they would. And, you know, I just wish to God that, you know, Democrats could understand that Joe Biden is about the business of saving the world. And it is like Churchill. And they hated Churchill. Hated him and recognized that he had bringing together this coalition. And all of these things that people said were negatives about Biden, which I get, he's been there forever. He's you know, vice president, he's senator, you know, he's old. All of those are strengths now because he has this experience, he has this steadiness, he has this sort of level, emotional level, to be able to deal with this stuff. And he has serious people working with him. It's not Michael Flynn. I mean, let's don't forget, Donald Trump's campaign manager, deputy campaign manager, foreign policy advisor, national security advisor, chief political advisor, personal lawyer. They all are felons, all of them. So that's who Donald Trump picked first. So this frustration that a lot of progressives have with Biden because he's not delivering on all this stuff. I mean, I get that, but if you don't think you're gonna wake up in January, if you don't think January 6th was just practice, you're crazy. If you don't think that they are determined to change this country, you're wrong. And they are. Well, on that note, Stuart Stevens, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, thanks so much for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks, David. I'll try to be less depressing next time. <laughs> okay. I won't hold you to that.